Welcome back to the Health Longevity Secret Show with Dr. Robert Lufkin. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a connected social entrepreneur who is looking at how artificial intelligence can drive longevity gains. Tina Woods is co-founder and CEO of Longevity International and has helped set an audacious goal of increasing the average lifespan by five years for an entire country by 2035. Tina has a degree in genetics from Cornell University and an MBA from Cass Business School in London. She is also the author of the book, Live Longer with AI. Before we begin, I would like to mention that this show is separate from my teaching and research roles at the medical school with which I am currently associated. It is part of my ongoing effort to bring quality, evidence-based information about health and longevity to the general public. Now, please enjoy this interview with Tina Woods. Hi, Tina Woods. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Before we dive into all the fascinating work that you're doing with AI and, and longevity, perhaps we could start by uh, you telling us how you came to be interested in this area. <laughs> oh, well, uh, like, like a lot of us, it starts from a very, very young age. I've always been um, fascinated with biology and the mechanism of life and 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 death, I guess. I mean, you know, looking at you know what it is that makes us who we are. And so, uh, as a child, I remember being fascinated with um, childbirth, and and I studied you know obstetrics textbooks, and I thought I'd be a, a doctor one day. Um, and was also intrigued by the whole kind of spiritual side, you know, sort of religion and and what it meant, you know, to die and your your immortality and all these sorts of things. So I guess, you know, in the end, it started from an early age, like like a lot of us, and of course. Um, fast forward a little bit, I, I, I studied sciences and was pre-med at university and uh, majored in, well, studied genetics and, 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 and uh, developmental biology. And that obviously opened my eyes to the whole world of, of genetics. And this was before the, the Human Genome Project just started. So that was a long time ago. <laughs> but, you know, since since then, I've always had a real fascination with, with just generally anything to do that that kind of spelled the, the, the history of our lives right back from the early days of, of you know, where we came from yeah that's it's fascinating and then from there you um your current work with um with government is 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 really very significant and and i think our audience would love to hear about uh the initiatives that you're working on and how you you've managed to uh bring longevity uh to the attention of uh a large group like that yeah so yeah, so I uh, so after I mean I spent a large part of my professional life actually working in the area of biotech and pharma. So so the whole kind of life science industry I I, I got to know pretty well, and uh, but was also just struck by how it was very very focused, obviously on you know treating us when we're ill. I mean except for vaccines and, and that sort of thing, but but pretty much that whole industry is very much focused on that and uh, going through a lot of uh, change now. But, but um, when I set up uh, Collider Health about 
about uh, a little over four years ago now, I was really, really interested in the system change that I felt was really needed and being driven by some of the disruptive forces that we see around us. I mean, technology is obviously a big force. We have the aging demographic as another force. Um, little did we know that the, the, the COVID pandemic would probably be one of the biggest disruptors that we've seen so far in, in our lifetimes. Um, and uh, so uh, I realized that actually to really drive the systemic changes that we needed to see um, to move, I guess, our, our, our illness model for, you know, we're really sort of focused on treating diseases, certainly in the Western world. Uh, to move it back to a more preventative health model was going to require some pretty significant sort of system change, um, which, you know, is, is actually been really spurred on by the by what we're seeing post-COVID now, which I'll come on to in a second. But I realized that actually to really drive those sort of changes, you had to really work with all the key stakeholders who need to be part of that solution, asking the bigger questions. So for me, it was like, well, how do we, we we've got a society which, you know, when you think about, and, and you know, we, we've obviously, our, 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 our lifespans have extended, we've obviously seen huge um, strides in, in public health, and, you know, things like sanitation and, and, and uh, antibiotics, you know, obviously, these have had a huge um, impact on us having a longer life. But what we've seen more recently, then, of course, is, you know, we've got this whole focus in our sort of, uh, sort of treating the, the sort of the treating disease model, we're very, very focused on, you know, and, and of course, a lot of our resources are focused on extending really, pretty much the end bit of our life when we're actually really, really ill. And there's a huge amount of, and certainly in the UK context, as I'm doing, a, I mean, I live and work in the UK. Obviously, I, I was born in Canada and did a lot of my studies in the States. So I guess I have an international perspective and worked for many years in the States, actually. Um, but, you know, pretty much, you know, so much of our um, our resources are spent on what happens when we're ill. And of course, even at the end stage of life, when we have all the multimorbidities, et cetera, many of which are driven by our lifestyles, unfortunately, and we're really starting to realize that now. Um, you know, it, it seemed that, you know, it's a crazy scenario where we've got all those resources and really what we needed to do was to focus more on keeping healthy and well. So, um, so in order to do that, you have to engage with a multitude of stakeholders. So yes, you need to work with um, the healthcare system. And obviously the US is a different system than us in the UK and Canada, which is more social social, social medicine and you know, funded by the taxpayer. We've got a different model in the US um, and all have its strengths and weaknesses. Um, but what we've seen and which sort of struck me is, and then of course, we've got our private sector, we've got obviously our third sector, we've got us as citizens. Um, and, you know, so, so really, you know, to really drive that system change, it has to be all of us to kind of be part of that solution, asking this bigger question, you know, how do we actually move this paradigm from a sickness model to a more preventative health model? And what we've seen um, over the last few years, actually, and and made worse by COVID is that actually our our life um, span um, actually has been decreasing. Certainly in the US, we've seen a drop in, in, in health in, in lifespan. And actually we've seen a decent, and this is obviously before COVID now accelerated because of COVID. And then the UK context, we've seen a decelerating um, rate of increases that we had previously had seen in life um, lifespan. But actually, what was really concerning for us in, at a government level in the UK was the widening gap in healthy life expectancy. So we see a 20-year difference between the poorest and the richest citizens in our society. So really, what, what so this is actually quite a, 
a shocking statistic and is also mirrored by the experience in the US and what we've seen through the COVID pandemic is that has actually been really sort of pretty, it's been pretty um, uh, uh, shockingly exposed really how our health is so linked with our other inequalities, our social and income inequalities. So it is a massive thing that needs to be tackled. And so one of the things, uh, I mean, uh, I'll spend, I mean, I can spend a few, I guess, um, uh, moments just uh, uh, detailing kind of how I've got to set up um, and work with the all-party parliamentary group for uh, for longevity. That was very much triggered by a recognition working with UK Research and Innovation, which is a big government um, uh, sort of agency which um, supports the startup community and innovation, you know, and, and one of the grand challenges that the UK government had said in 2017, one of four, was how do we tackle what they call the challenge of the aging society? Well, I like to turn that on the head and see it as an opportunity of us living longer and actually what we can do as we are living longer, how do we make that more of an opportunity rather than a problem, you know, because I think that mindset is something that actually is such a big issue that all of us need to really kind of wrestle with. How do we change it into an opportunity that we've got all the science and technology and all the developments that we're seeing into an opportunity for us to live a healthier, longer life? And really, the focus needs to be on health span. Now, if you talk to a longevity scientist and people like Aubrey de Grey and Barzilai and all the amazing people who are very much at the cutting edge of longevity medicine, what they'll say is that let's really focus on all the developments in terms of tackling the root of the aging process and make sure that our, our, our period of morbidity at the end of our lives is, is shortened as much as possible so that we live as much of our lifespan in good health. So what they want to see is almost see health span and lifespan kind of converging. And of course, if you speak to the real sort of immortalitis, I mean, you know, they're, they're saying because of the pace of change, you know, it's happening so quickly now that actually we'll be able to be immortal very, very soon because the science is going to tell us how to stop aging its tracks. Now, I think it's probably a little bit um, far off, if ever. Um, I mean, some people like um, are talking about, you know, the longevity escape velocity being hit by 2045 and maybe a 50% chance reducing that, um, you know, to, uh, to achieve that in 2036, for example. Well, that's, that's pretty soon. I, I, I remain to be convinced about that. But what I think it tells you is that there is an incredible acceleration of just understanding on the biology of how we age. And concepts like the like, like biological age um, are really interesting because that's really um, shining a spotlight on what we can do to keep ourselves, I guess, um, healthy and young on the inside, you know, at an innate biological level. Um, but what I would question in all of this, and this is the debate that I have with the scientists, and I coming from a policy perspective, who of course are looking at how do we make sure that the um, benefits of all this technology are um, able to reach as many people as possible and really tackle you know, the real inequities that we have as a, as, as, as a society and as a population. So, And that's where the wider determinants of health are so important. And this is where the broader issues around you know, inequalities are, are very much part of the solution, which you know, may not be the focus of a lot of the longevity science, but I'm actually think it, it is um, an area that needs a lot more understanding and is very much the focus of a lot of work that I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, the inequalities issue is is really tragic. The, the the idea that one could determine the the likelihood of a given disease based on your zip code or you know what neighborhood you happen to be born into is, is really tragic. But 
But the idea of, of shifting policy, getting government involved with longevity research and aging research is, is wonderful. We, we have a long ways to go in the U.S. You know, the FDA doesn't even consider aging a disease, although a lot of people are working on that. Um, now that you've gotten government buy-in on this, which is, which is wonderful, do you think that how do you how do you see using that power now is is the um do you think the the role now is uh do we still need answers to our basic questions in other words uh do we need to empower research and continue development there or do you think the enough answers are in that it's it's more about implementing policy and um uh, lifestyle changes, social changes, that sort of thing. Where where are we with longevity in your in your mind about that? So so I think there's I think there's an increasing recognition, certainly with the work that the All Party Parliamentary Group for Longevity has been doing. I think we we are seeing an appreciation that um, you have to tackle, you have to really attack attack it right from day one. And I'm even talking before conception now. It is a life course approach that you have to see this in. So everything that you do as a young person, as a child, has such huge implications for your for your healthy you know, life trajectory you know, further on. So I think there's definitely a growing understanding of that. And I think there is an interesting link also with the whole science of aging, because I think you, know, you start to age from, well, you start to age actually even before you're born, because even how the, the lifestyle that your parents lead has, has an epigenetic kind of legacy, even when you're born. So I think there's some really interesting research that's coming out that, that speaks to that. But I think you, know, you have to see, you start to age from day one. So it really is in all of our interests, you know, whether as a person for yourself, but also for all the different stakeholders around you, you know, as you're growing up, you know, to look after yourself. Now, you may be at a disadvantage, you know, in the sense that you might have been born in the wrong postcode, or you may not have, you know, the educational levels of, of, of your more sort of, of your of, of, of the, the, the populations who have higher educational levels and tend to live longer because they have access to, to, to better quality of uh, work. Work and, and lives and and even that point about work. I mean, what we're really seeing and this is coming out of the COVID experience too. The quality of work has a huge bearing on the quality of your health. And if you have your health, you're able to be productive for longer. And of course, that then has a an impact on on economic prosperity. So it's all so interconnected. So I think so. From uh, so so the just going back to the goal of the All Party Parliamentary Group for Longevity. Our goal was as you pointed out in the introduction, is how do we achieve five extra years of healthy life expectancy while minimizing health inequalities? So that goal was set in 2017 as a focus for one of the grant, for the, the grand challenge program, which I spoke to earlier. So I think that was a great focus because it was kind of like our North Star. So I think that's where some of our, your, your colleagues and my colleagues in the US have been looking to how we kind of went about getting government to focus on this, because you do need that kind of goal setting, which is, is almost like your, your mission statement and how you can then align all the different stakeholders around that mission, which is really how we have been able to do so much, because really what we've been doing is bringing all the stakeholders, some of whom might be threatened in some ways. I mean, you know, um, business models are, are, you know, for example, you know, uh, in, in, in the food industry and in the pharma industry, you know, they're all being threatened by this focus on prevention, because for example, just taking food. So 
the whole food industry is, is under the spotlight from one of the initiatives that I'm involved in that came out of the all-party parliamentary group work, which is the Business for Health initiative. And that's very much about how do you how do you get business to kind of contribute more to the nation's health? We know there's a huge role that business has in employee health, you know, employee health and well-being programs, for example. But then they also have a massive role in terms of uh, producing products and services that that deliver on our health, but also reduce harm. And then, of course, there's a wider um, sort of societal impact um, of uh, businesses' role in communities and, and wider society. So there, so the three there are the three core sort of elements where business has a huge role to play. And certainly in the UK, with the UK government and coming out of COVID, they're very interested, you know, in, in looking at this partly as a part of the solution. Going back to the system change element, we know that our our national healthcare system which is under strain. And obviously our government and our economic um, recovery is, is so focused on how do we get out of this, this, this mess that we got ourselves into in COVID because we suffered hugely as indeed the US has because we were very unhealthy. I mean, we fared worse in Europe. So poor health, we have to tackle. So how do you tackle the, the poor health element? So business is part of that solution, working with public sector, working with government. So um, so it, it, uh, so so that's a big focus of, of some of the work that I'm um, um, working on at the moment. And also um, involving, uh, you know, all the different businesses across different industries. So the food system is one area, pharma, of course, housing, for example, you know, if you're talking about the determinants of health, poor housing is, has a huge role to play in poor health, air pollution, quality of air, you know, all active transport, you know, there's so there are all these different sectors that have a huge role to play in delivering on health of the population and public health. So, so these are big areas that we're looking at, which are going to drive some of that change that we need to be seen to really deliver on this goal of healthy life expectancy while minimizing health inequalities. But, you know, it's tough because we're talking about systemic inequalities in society. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's a massive undertaking, but it needs to be done. Um, so, uh, so this is what we're trying to do. It's, it's great that you're, you're tackling these on such a, such a massive broad level. And I mean, in addition to the, the the like infrastructure changes with housing and all on that, um, what do you think are the most um, the most cost effective or the most powerful changes in in lifestyle or food that you can implement across a society that will have the most impact on longevity? Well, so um, just so we, uh, the, the all-party parliamentary, we published um, a follow-on report from the one that I mentioned uh, that we published last year. So this was a report called Leveling Up Health. So we were very, very focused on coming out of COVID, how we, we could address the, the, the huge um, health inequalities and, and link it back into um, the recovery program. So, you know, really sort of making the point that health and wealth are completely linked. You cannot separate them. You cannot have a prosperous nation without a healthier nation. So that's our sort of thesis. And, um, and the areas that we're looking at, um, which have come out of a lot of the evidence um, that we have in the UK and probably quite similar in, in the US as well, because we're, we're, we're similar in the sense of in terms of our lifestyle uh, sort of uh, habits, etc. cetera. Um, uh, but we're, we're focused on um, five key priorities in the short to medium term in terms of delivering on our, what we call HLE plus five or healthy life expectancy while minimizing health inequalities goal. So those areas are um, healthy children, going back to the life course approach to healthy longevity, um, clean food, um, 
tackling obesity, which is absolutely a massive issue, and we're very, very focused on that. Uh, clean air, so dealing with air pollution, etc. And then smoking. We know smoking, you know, we just need to wipe out smoking. But of course, we realize that smoking tends to be um, much higher in, um, in, the, in sort of the lower socioeconomic groups. In fact, we would have the healthy life expectancy gap by reducing, by getting rid of smoking. So that's a massive um, policy objective. And already there's been a lot of work done. And of course, we've had a lot of disinvestment in tobacco and all those sorts of things in, in the big in the big funds that, that have tended to invest in tobacco. That's starting to change now. So going back to one of the objectives for business for health, we want to get companies to disinvest in industries that are causing harm to health and invest in those industries that are producing, you know, healthier um, uh, outcomes for, for the population. And again, try and incentivize, you know, and this is through the business index uh, work that we're developing as part of bringing health into ESG mandates. But just going back to the priorities in terms of what society, but also us individually, I think, um, I think us individually, we of course have a huge role to play, but it's, but we have to see ourselves in the context of our wider environments. And I think that's where the longevity science perhaps is not, understanding that as much as they should, because we all behave in context of our environments. Of course, there's so much we can do in terms of living a healthier life. If you're incentivized, motivated, if you've got the resources, and if you've got a great life, you want to live longer and you will do what it takes to probably increase your chances of having a healthier, longer life. And I think that's sometimes missed from some of the, the sort of the hard edge science um, discussion on, on longevity. You know, who wants to live forever or indeed for a long time if you've got basically a crap life. And I think that's, that has to be said. Um, so I think, uh, so I think, you know, so there, there has to be a, a focus on the environment in which we live. And that's where government and have the, the wider roles of all the different stakeholders have got to come into play in societal um, ways of, of structuring our systems and, and incentivizing our systems. Because at the moment, we often were driven by this focus on GDP growth. Well, Look at countries like New Zealand, which have said, hang on a second, actually, we're going to measure the success of our country on, on, in terms of health and well-being. So health, you know, and, and all the government budget setting is all focused on how do we maximize health and well-being of our nation so that GDP is not the prime way of measuring the success of the society. So I think this is the direction of travel that we're going in with a lot of the discussions that are taking place at the moment is we've got to measure because if we, we are seeing health and well so interconnected. Us as individuals, of course, we can do so much to lead a healthier life. And it has to start from day one. We have to eat better. So we have to we have to cut out our addiction to ultra high processed food. Now, of course, the commercial determinants of health are such that we are barraged by advertising, barraged by marketing, barraged by the, you know, we are, we are at, at we are at the mercy of very, very slick and very well financed lobbying activities of the big food companies. So it is not a surprise that we're eating a lot of unhealthy food, which tends to also be cheap, which is why unfortunately the lower socioeconomic groups are eating far far too much junk food than is than is good for them. So, and indeed, you know, so that obviously is an area that needs massive attention. And this is something that the UK government are really looking at. We just had a national food strategy published a couple of weeks ago. Business for Health are going to be looking at the food, you know, food system shaping because that is, and that has a huge massive implication in terms of healthy children, reducing the obesity and epidemic that we're seeing in children and adolescents, which is just shocking. And of course, is, is at the heart of all the chronic diseases that we're seeing later in life. And if you are following the signs of aging, when you know that Alzheimer's, heart disease, 
high blood pressure, diabetes, they're all interconnected and you have to tackle it at the root of what is causing this multimorbidity, this sort of the metabesity epidemic um, is what some people have in the States are referring to. And I know our colleagues in the US um, are referring to, it is this clustering of chronic diseases that have everything to do with our, which, which yes, of course, there's a genetic component, but lifestyle is, has a massive, massive um, uh, impact on that. So we do have, and we need the knowledge and we need the education and we need the, we, we need the motivation to be able to reduce you know, eat more healthily, reduce our alcohol consum- consumption. Um, microbiome is obviously another big area. We know that our gut and the bacteria in our gut has a massive role to play in terms of how our bodies respond to food. So that, of course, there's a lot of research now, you know, spelling out and trying to identify at an individual level what the unique recipe will be for us as individuals, but at a, at a, at a, at a, at a global, um, at a sort of population health level, we need that data coming through. And this is where the AI piece comes in. We need to have the data and access to the data, which we're starting to be able to get through all the, the wearables and all the technologies that are surrounding us now. So we need to really understand what that data is telling us about how we respond uniquely at an individual level, going back to our, our genetic, um, pro, our genetic um, sort of uh, inheritance from our parents, how we live our lives, how it, how that expresses itself epigenetically, how we can influence our biological age, going back to that concept in our innate measure of our health status. Um, so these are all really important. Of course, fitness is important. And these, you know, so if you if you get it right, and I, you know, one thing uh, I can talk about, actually, the, the one lesson from my book, which I uh, wrote um, and was published almost a year ago now, I interviewed uh, about 30 sort of experts in the field of, of longevity, and that's you know, scientists and entrepreneurs, innovators, the real kind of cutting edge of people at this in this field. I asked them, you know, what do you do to keep um, healthier for longer? And it really was interesting because despite all the focus and on all the sort of technological solutions, and of course, you know, all the sort of, you know, drugs and, and, and interventions that can attack the root of aging and near Basilei, who of course, is you know uh, hitting the FDA saying you know we need to you know need to be seen aging as a disease and, and focus our research around that and trialing you know cheap drugs like metformin which has shown an anti aging effect these are all you know cutting edge stuff um, but um, uh, you know um, I've just lost my train of thought there but um, we need to sort of look at all these sorts of things to really understand the simple that's where we were going with this the simple solutions. If you look at the blue zone countries, what they will tell you that the cut the areas around or the blue zone the blue zone they, the areas around the world. Um, so I've got a plane overhead. The areas around the zones around the world where people tend to live a long, healthy life, they tend to live in areas where physical activity is part of the day to day. So they will walk to the shops. They will walk everywhere, you know, as part of their day to day. They will they will eat a healthy diet. So the Mediterranean diet is 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 quite healthy in terms of you know nuts and and olive oil and you know not um, processed food, etc. A little bit of red wine, you know, which is which is pretty good. Um, and then of course that sense of purpose and sense of belonging and sense of family is very very strong. Social connections. Um, these are all very much at the heart of why people tend to live longer. And actually, when I was asking all these experts in my book, how they, what they do, it it pretty much mirrored that. It's what your grandmother tells you, eat your beans, see your friends, get sleep, fresh air. It's all these, all these very, very simple ways of keeping you going. So 
If you speak to some of our longevity scientists, they will say, yes, those mechanisms, and of course, we have a certain amount of control over that. And if you're lucky, if you've got good income, you can live in a nice house with lots of green spaces and fresh air, you know, that will get you to like 80 plus. If you want to live to 120 plus, because I think it was the French lady, um, I always forget her name, uh, who lived to 124 that's the maximum lifespan that seems to be the maximum, the, the limit at the moment anyway, until we hit the longevity escape velocity and start going. And many people are talking about hitting to 150 now, like Alex Avronkov, who's a dear friend of mine doing amazing work in AI and longevity. The 150 doesn't seem to be too out of reach now because of all the science that's taking place. But I mean, but we need to really, but to be able to get past 120 in getting past what we call, you know, the blue zone territory, we do have to tackle at the, the root of aging. And this is going right at the heart of the mechanisms that are genetic, you know, at a, at a cellular level, what is really at the root of the, 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 the decay that our bodies go through. So, so that's the interesting, that's the, the point that we are reaching now is what will it take? What will science deliver? What we can make accessible to wider populations um and um you know and and but i still there's still an element of me you know that says you know there's so much that we need to do this wider piece the wider social piece the wider social determinants of health piece that is so important to tackle you know getting to the 150 there's so much work that we need to do first to really deliver on these very very basic considerations to to deliver a healthier happier life for all for all of us as much as we can. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to get to your book uh, next, but before I did, I have one one more thought, one more challenge we have in the U.S. We certainly don't have the buy-in that you you have created in in your country for in longevity and all. Um, and I and I wonder our our attempts at national recommendations for health have been mixed. You know, we come up with a food pyramid that you know, many people disagree with, but that's the, the recommendations of some of our leading institutions. So how do you, how do you uh, reach consensus? Um, in other words, everybody agrees they want to lose weight, but some people that obesity is bad. Uh, but some people say, well, just exercise more, eat less. Other people say certain diets or certain things. How, how do you, how do you get everybody on the same page with recommendations? Well, so so that's the tough bit because it's not the science of the technology. We've got all that. We've got we've got more and more evidence that is shedding light on really what is the heart of our ill health and how we can do more to live healthier. I think that the tricky bit is dealing with vested interests. It's dealing with um, uh, um, organizational silos and 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 cultural mindsets. I mean, those are the biggest biggest barriers change. And so I think, you know, I made reference to the culture piece. So, so in the UK, for example, I mean, one of the biggest mindset problems that we've got is that we think our public health system will cure everything. They will, you know, we don't need to worry about our health because we've got this wonderful, you know, public, public, fun, publicly funded, you know, healthcare system. Well, that's just not, it is plainly not the case. It is completely unsustainable and we need to change that. But then we have to change our addiction and our obsession with thinking that this is the solution to, to all of our ills. We have to take more responsibility and see, and also it's incumbent on 
all the different stakeholders um, to really look at the problem differently. And I'm afraid it doesn't mean we have to tackle vested interests. So it means tackling the food industry. It means tackling all the vested. In- and in the states, you know, it's 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 you know the you know the the fact is is that you know the whole medical system, the way that it's incentivized, is just perverse because it's incentivizing the wrong thing. <laughs> it's about you know payment for services, and you know to a certain extent we have that problem with our hospitals. You know in the UK. I mean, you know, they rely on sick people coming through their doors and that's how they, you know, get more money from the government to to fund their hospitals. So, you know, the whole model, it just, it's, we have to just think differently. I mean, what do we want as a society? Do we want to do better at treating ill people and not worry, you know, and have this increasing demand of of ill people coming through the doors? Um, Or do we need to tackle it at its roots and just try and keep healthy and well? But then that means getting getting different stakeholders into one room, breaking down all the different barriers, the cultural piece, the vested interests, you know, all the barriers to change, um, you know, uh, and also legacy systems. I mean, that's another big issue. You know, uh, we've got legacy systems in the, in, the, in, the, in the UK, the healthcare system in terms of data, you know, it's really hard to share data. I mean, half of our data isn't even digitized yet. You know, we've got all these massive issues to deal with. And, and there are some parallels also in the US context. We've got to, you know, be honest and say, listen, there's a lot of reasons why we're propping up the status quo. How do we change the status quo? We have to ask very, very different questions and we have to be really bold and visionary. And I'm afraid it comes down to the leadership from the from you know from our government and our business leaders. But in the end, I hope that some of it will come through just consumer pressure. And I think, you know, we've got our younger generations, we need to educate people, we need to, you know, educate people better in schools about why they should be cooking their own food rather than, you know, eating, you know, fried chicken all the time, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it will come from different places, but I'm, I'm afraid a lot of it is about following the money. And, you know, if we look at what has made big changes in the climate change space, and really what we're trying to do in the UK is saying, Health is as important, actually, coming out of COVID, as climate change. And actually, they're completely interconnected anyway. Living greener, living longer, it's all completely interconnected. We've got to reduce our reliance on meat, eat more plant-based protein. We've got to have cleaner air, you know, green spaces. You know, it's all, we need, it's all interconnected anyway. But what we need to do is say, listen, we've got to grow up and just wake, wake up to the coffee here and bring people in the room, and it takes leadership, it takes us as consumers and citizens to say, this is no longer good enough, and this is unacceptable that we're seeing actually a growing problem in health inequalities. It's not shrinking, it's growing coming out of COVID. So we've got some, there's some serious stuff to be done. Yeah, well, switching gears here, I love your book, Live Longer with AI. I really enjoyed reading it. It's it, The subtitle is How Artificial Intelligence is Helping Us Extend Our Health Span and Live Better Too. And it's not only just about AI, but like you say, you interview uh these, these thought leaders in longevity and, and some real, you have some beautiful, interesting conversations about them, about their lifestyle choices that they've, that they've taken. So um, how is AI gonna imp- going to impact uh, longevity and, and our science and understanding of that? 
Sure. So we already know AI is is really starting to make inroads in healthcare, and people like Eric Topol, who of course is is is, is a guru in the states, um, and and published has has published many books about how AI is going to really change the face of medicine. And in fact, Eric Topol helped um our uh, helped us in the UK with workforce issues. You know how to how to really understand um, the implications for you know doctors and nurses etc. in terms of AI com- coming into healthcare. There's an enormous amount in terms of solutions for health that we're already seeing. Imaging technology is one example. And and of course, I speak to that, Um, you know, imaging, for example, you know, in in, in terms of uh, AI being better than now being better than radiologists, in fact, in in terms of spotting patterns in in, in scans, etc. And back end support, making our systems more efficient and triage, all these sorts of things. And of course, we've seen through COVID, you know, the enormous strides that we've made in terms of virtual consultations and things like that, which, of course, are increasingly using, you know, chatbots and things like that. So already AI is is, is, inc- is is moving into the healthcare space. What I write a lot about in my book, going back to all the discussion, which really has fascinated, fascinated me is how can we use all these technologies to shed insight into what can keep us healthy and well for longer? So what are the insights that we can get through data and then harnessing AI across data sets. And of course, you know, the big tech, you know, Google, Amazon, Apple, they already get, they're already collecting so much data in our lives um, that are really shedding light um, into this whole arena about our health. And of course, they're already investing really, really heavily in this. What I am saying is let's use all the, the science that is that is coming out now, the longevity scientists and the technologists to understand what is it that is keeping us healthy and well. So this goes back to some of the really sharp end of research and people like Alex Zavarunkov, who's doing a lot of work in AI-driven drug discovery, for example. So, you know, really understanding and, and, and being able to identify new targets for diseases, for example, at, at, at a lightning speed compared to, to the pharma um, sector. You know, in research and development in the pharmacy sector takes takes years. So it's profoundly disrupting the whole R and D sort of discovery process. But what what what? But in silico medicine, which is Alex Zavarankov's business, and one of the the, um, the leaders that I interviewed in my book. What he is also doing is really shedding light on uh, the whole um, field of biological age and the use of aging biomarkers. And so we've got, uh, and, and when I, about biomarkers, I mean, what is what are the sort of the markers, whether it's through, you know, through our blood, genomics, you know, digital fingerprints, for example, that are, that can indicate um, and be used to uh, shed light on our biological age. And then from that, and, and there's a lot of, you know, discussion around developing composite biomarkers and you know how can we tell how young we are inside and what are the interventions that can help us um, uh, help us with uh, the, the best you know interventions whether it be lifestyle whether it's pharmaceuticals or food whatever it might be um, to help us lead a healthier longer life and then of course with that data and aggregated up and using um, you know all the these technologies at our disposal and being able to connect data sets you know from individuals and across um, different uh, different disciplines how we can use that information to shed light at a population health level. And this can inform policy decisions, you know, all these sorts of things. But I think, so for me, it's about really getting getting very, very involved in that whole space of understanding at an individual level what puts us at risk of diseases. So going back to the multimorbidities that I talked about earlier, we know that if we are able to attack far earlier upstream, I mean, if we could 
understand and we're starting in fact just in the press and um, this week you know there's some new imaging technologies that can identify the, the warning signs of dementia and alzheimer's disease through scans years and years before you know a person would be able to you know see the symptoms themselves we need to understand all that data and work out how we can spot those signs how we can use the technologies to 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 um uh, identify those and give us the tools to intervene we, and to be encouraged and motivated to, to do those from a, from a lifestyle perspective, but also, you know, how that will actually influence how we deliver health, what our, what our governments need to do in terms of policy decisions. So I think there's a massive opportunity for the use of AI to really shed light. Now, I say this, but of course, with a caveat, because, you know, there's a huge mount to climb in terms of access in that data. And of course, you know, there's a whole issue that we're dealing with in the UK government. I mean, people... You know, they don't want to share their data, you know, unless they're very, very clear about how their data is going to be used. And there's all sorts of data sort of discussions that we're having in terms of access to, to citizen data, private data. Of course, we have GDPR, you know, from a European perspective in terms of data protection. You know, there's all that which are all around protecting our sort of privacy and, and, and our rights to citizens. But how can we create data models that, that uh, give us the trust and reassurance from a individual perspective that we can share our data for ethical use for research because of course there's a huge bonanza for all of us if we do share data that collectively from a population health level we will start to develop the insights that we need to, to help us deliver better health you know for us you know as citizens but also in terms of our healthcare services etc cetera, etc cetera. and then you link it back into for example our, our, you know we've got UK Biobank and Genomics England doing amazing work in terms of they've already shown what they've been doing in terms of identifying the sort of new variants for COVID um, based on genomic um, sort of analysis, you know, there's so much more that we could be doing to, uh, to, to, to spur on research in this space. So I think that's where the real, real excitement is, you know, in terms of using AI to help us in the preventative health space um, and, and opening up that whole kind of, uh, and, and creating a, an environment where it becomes easier for us to share our data. We have the incentives and the trust to be able to set incentive uh, to share our data, connect data sets, you know, and, and then spur on a vast um, acceleration that we could be seeing in the SME sector, the startup community, working with, you know, public sector and, and all sorts of things that we're trying to do in the, co on the collaboration front in the UK, certainly. Yeah, and just for our audience, uh, to, to be clear, by, by AI, I think we're, we're meaning specifically machine learning, specifically deep learning within that, and sort of the convolutional neural networks, the generative mm -hmm. adversarial networks, the, the current uh, 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 renaissance of AI following uh, 2012 and the breakthroughs that, that really experienced. And that, that AI, as you say, is really data-driven and it's key to getting access and data. And I mean, I can't help but in, in the US, we have, of course, HIPAA, uh, which is yep. protects patient information. And I can't help but think that, you know, the good that HIPAA done, has done in protecting patient information is by far outweighed by the the damage or the lost opportunity it has created by making that data not available for analysis to these powerful yeah. AI programs that we could learn so much for. So hopefully, <laughs> you know, like you say, the, the data is going to be a, a, a key piece in this. Great. Yeah. So, yeah, we can learn more in the book. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great read. I highly recommend it. Well, now in, in our last uh, our last few minutes, uh, Tina, I'd love to hear uh, 
with, with all your knowledge about this, I'd be curious, what, what personal choices do you make in your mm-hmm. lifestyle that you, that you found to be effective or that you're optimistic about uh, as far as health and longevity? Sure. So that's a, such a good question. Um, so I, I have made some changes, definitely. I, I think, uh, so the things that, you know, as I've grown more aware, I mean, and I say this with a, with a, with, a, with a, I guess, a caveat in the sense that I also know that so much to the, the sharp end of things are still being done in animal models. And I've yet, you know, you know, so, so I, and I, you know, the evidence base isn't there yet. And I know that there's so much money being, there are billions and trillions of dollars being spent on supplements, which absolutely have no evidence behind them whatsoever in terms of doing anything for your health. So, you know, so I'm quite, I guess, uh, quite, um, not cynical, but you know, I, I sort of approach this with, I guess, uh, some some uh, some not skepticism, but I, I like to have you know the evidence base behind you know my choices, and I think uh, that's the real the real holy grail in all of this is finding the evidence to show what actually what works, and this is where AI will have a huge role to play. But I would say the simple things that I try and do. Every longevity scientist I know are all. All follow the, the the intermittent fasting diet to, to a certain extent. I mean, it's individual depending on how you want to interpret it for yourself. So that so that is one thing that I do. So what that does is, I mean, you know, puts your body into a so-called kind of quasi-survival mode. So I think there are certain elements that that should there's there's certain evidence to show that if you put so so high, so high interval into high interval sort of training, you know, um, intermittent fasting. These, On the fasting, these, are you one meal a day? Uh, are you so, meal so a day four or? days? Four days a week. So four days a week. I will not. I will. Um, I will eat in the evening, but then I won't eat till the following evening. So it's quite a long. So I'll fast, you know, pretty much for the whole day. But that's four days a week, and then three days a week, I'll kind of go to be a little bit more sort of you know, normal as it were, or not normal, but you know what I mean? Sort of two to three meals a day. Um, but I will do that sort of four days a week. And what that also does is it keeps my, my weight in check, you know, because I'm, you know, my, well, I'm actually 57 now, so I can't even say mid fifties anymore, but you know, and obviously, you know, postmenopausal, you know, you kind of are more likely to gain weight, all those sorts of things. So it keeps the weight in check as well. Obviously through COVID, I realized I would have to, and fitness is obviously a massive element that I, that I do focus on. COVID made it difficult because, of course, you know, we weren't moving around as much. We were in lockdown. And so in the UK, we had three periods of lockdown. And I tend to do a lot of remote working anyway. But I realized, actually, I'm I'm sitting down, like, I'm at my desk, like, 12 hours a day. I mean, I've been working very, very hard. And sometimes, and I hate to say it, you know, seven days a week, um, you know, working very, very long hours. So I made I made it absolutely a non-negotiable that I go out for an hour and I, I, I run. I used to, and, and so that was a new routine because my gym had closed. And so I run. I didn't really like running, but now I've actually quite liked running because I've gotten used to it. Um, I do rowing and then I do yoga. So again, a new routine, but again, really important. Uh, So I do that every day religiously, um, non-negotiable. And of course, the food that I eat, I do not eat any high processed food. I just don't. I mean, I eat lots of fresh fruit, vegetables, seeds, you know, and that I think is so important. Um, So I do that. I do try and get my sleep. Sometimes I don't get enough sleep and that's just through being too busy and I worry too much. So that's an area definitely I have to tackle. I probably drink too much wine because I also like my wine. Um, But, you know, I try and keep that in check as well. And I try and have 
you know, four to five completely alcohol-free days if I if I can manage it. Um, but, you know, I, I like to enjoy life, but also that's really important. You have to enjoy life and you have to make time, which I do try and do more of, spending time with your friends, being, you know, spending time with your, your dear family, which, and I'm very lucky, I've got a wonderful family and wonderful husband, and really sort of really cherishing that because I think all the evidence shows that if you've got this, this sort of social richness, the family kind of, um, you know, those connections with your family and friends, you know, all that is so important. I do take a few supplements. I've, I've been a, gui- a, um, a guinea pig, which I write about in my, in my book a little bit, you know, these DNA sort of lifestyle fitness companies and epigenetic profile, all that sort of stuff. And I've had various sort of assessments and I've taken some of them, you know, you know, I, I do take omega-3, I do take um, vitamin B12, um, I've kind of, uh, I, I, I take vitamin D actually. Um, and uh, I kind of, I kind of, I, I flirt with different sort of supplements just because I've read something and like NMM and, and I never can pronounce them. I even wrote it down in my book, resveratrol, because for some reason I can never <laughs> pronounce that word. I know if you drink humongous, very dangerous quantities of red wine, you'd probably get enough, but I wouldn't recommend that. So um <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so those are simple, simple things that I do, which are pretty much the recipe that I mentioned earlier that kind of came out of my with all these interviews in my book. It comes down to really simple things. And I still haven't worked out whether I want to live to 120. I'm not so sure. I think I would really be so grateful if I could live to like 90 or 100 in good health and just do the things that I'm passionate about. And the thing I will close on, the most important thing is that sense of curiosity and purpose in your life that keeps you wanting to learn and do things that you enjoy. I think once you lose that, you've lost the will to the will to survive. And that is the one thing I think, even despite all the research that I've done, I write a little bit about in this book because there's so much you can learn from animal models. I'm afraid us human beings are a bit different than animals, I think, still. There's something in us that quest, that understanding what life is all about, that deep sense of purpose and meaning. I think once you lose that, you lose the will to live. So I think all this talk about immortality, I think you have to go with this other bigger question of why is it, what keeps us going? And that is, you know, finding your passion in life and that, that curiosity that wants you to keep on going and learn, you know, that to me is such an important part of it. And I've kind of, you know, I'm, I've kind of, you know, with what I'm doing now, that's, uh, that's keeping me going. Definitely. I just have to make sure I don't work too hard. (laughs) That's so important. That sense of purpose. Uh, One more thing on supplements or on additives Uh, after talking with Neurobarzillai about metformin, uh, do you take metformin? So that's a really good question. I haven't yet, but maybe I should. I just, do you know, I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm kind of, and I don't like, taking things unless I really have to. So that, that's my own personal thing. I like to be as, you know, uh, so that's, so yeah, so I might get there. Um, I probably will wait for a bit more research data to come out, um, but I, I, will, I will be swayed probably, um, you know, eventually. It's just, you know, I'm very cautious, shall I say. I, I mean, some areas I dive in, but in other areas, uh, I'm, I'm a bit more cautious. But yes, I think in, in, as far as I think metformin, absolutely. That seems to be a no-brainer. I also think, by the way, um, HRT for women, I think that's the whole area 
which I think is such an interesting question um, because we know that Alzheimer's, for example, is is you know the the, the, the it, it can be triggered by the menopause, um, and I, I think there's a lot in the hormones debate. I think there's a lot of research that needs to kind of unpick that. Um, but I've been and I think if you speak, there's still a lot of research that shows the risks of of HRT, and I think there's there's a lot more research that's going to come through that shows the benefits from a long, healthy longevity perspective. So so that's another area that I think is one to watch actually. Yeah, that, that, that is, is really huge. So I guess if the answer for metformin is no, I, I will assume that uh, rapamycin is also a no at this point. Huh? <laughs> I haven't, I know that's another one. Yes. And I've, I'm very, I'm keeping a close eye on that. So I think, and I know dear, I, I know near, he's a dear friend of mine and I will eventually be swayed on the metformin argument, but you know, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, Tina, for taking the time and speaking with us and hearing, hearing about all the exciting things and the, and the good work you're doing and, and sharing your own choices uh, about lifestyle. We really appreciate uh, having you be on the show. Well, thank you. It's been a pl- an absolute pleasure. And, and thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your show. No, this is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking of it because of something you've seen here. If you find this to be of value of you, please hit that like button and subscribe to support the work we do on this channel. Also, we take your suggestions and advice very seriously. Please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching and we hope to see you next time.